Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your other host, Jack Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for match eight of our sports bracket, the final match of round one. This week, we will be discussing 1981's Chariots of Fire, as well as 2002's Blue Crush. So I know we're like 80,000 episodes in, but I realized this whole time we should have been calling ourselves the protagonist and protagonist. I guess. I'm thinking about it because Chariots of Fire has a Durotagonist set up. Yeah. Or Deuteragonist, whatever. Yeah. Durotagonist is wrong, but better to say, so here mm. we are now. I also kind of like the vague fire and water themes we have going this week. Yeah, we do. Although, one of them is a metaphorical fire, like a sort of small, smoldering fire. So I like smoldering fire. Well, it depends how literal you want to get into biblical interpretations. Usually very little. <laughs> That's fair. I'm kind of the same way. Yeah, but Blue Crush does have some very literal water in it. There's that one scene. <laughs> yes, one. <laughs> all, all the rest of the water is a metaphor. <laughs> all right, why don't we go ahead and get started with Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire follows the careers of two Olympic athletes from the 1924 Great Britain team. Harold Abrams, and Eric Little. Abrams begins his career at the University of Cambridge and becomes the first person to complete the Trinity Great Court run and also faces anti-Semitism from the administration. He goes on to win a number of national competitions. Meanwhile, Little, the son of missionaries, returns from China to his parents' native Scotland. His devout sister initially disproves of his competitive running, but when Eric explains that he does it for the glory of God, she accepts it. Eventually, Abrams and Little compete against each other and Little wins, with Abrams taking the loss poorly. However, Sam Musabini, professional coach, offers to train Abrams. Soon after, both athletes are chosen to represent Great Britain at the Paris Olympics. A few days before the Games, Little learns that his race, the 100 meter, will be held on Sunday and refuses to compete on the Sabbath. After dissent from those above, a compromise is reached, and Little will compete in the 400 meter instead. Abrams loses to the Americans in the 200 meter, but wins gold in the 100 meter. Little is initially underestimated by the American coach for the 400 meter, but is also able to bring home the gold for Great Britain. So I want to point out, you said opposition from those above. You mean like the administrators, not like the angels and the Lord on high. Well, it depends on who you think chooses the Prince of Wales. Wales uses a prince? <laughs> I think that's the, the Prince of Wales is in the film. I think they call it the Prince of Wales. That sounds right. He was a prince. You could talk to him kind of like a Hemsworth. Yeah, it is the Prince of Wales. There we go, yeah. So where do we want to start with Chariots of Fire? Let's just go ahead and get out of the way. This is the most Oscar baby film on this bracket. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, what's it called? Remember the Titans? Remember the Titans is close, but Remember the Titans is also having much more fun than this is. That's fair. Yeah, this one definitely wants that Oscar. And fair won like 11 Oscars? Seven? It won four Academy Awards, Jackson. There we go. It was nominated for seven. There we go. See? I was close to history, right? And they're both prime numbers. Another place to start is, it's from 1981, but it still got that, like, 70s lighting. And I kind of appreciate that. I still, like, I have a fondness for the certain type of light and camera that you get in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot brighter than the other two films from the 70s that we've watched so far. That would be Rocky and Slapshot. Yeah. Even scenes set in comparatively dark settings are still well lit enough to see the characters. It feels intentionally dark, not, oh, they just didn't have the after settings right. 
Yeah, the interior shots of Chariots of Fire are night and day between the interior shots of the other two films with how they're lit. But I will say they did a lot of shooting on location at prestigious ancient halls made of stone which have a lot of echoes and you can't hear what's being said for a lot of it. Where are you and your country near you? We have a duty, a solemn duty to those countless millions of lives. I can't vouch for those times. Yeah. One of the reasons that these are really well lit is because they're shooting on location, and most of those buildings were built before electricity. Oh, for sure. I appreciate shooting on location. I'm sad that they didn't really have a boom mic. I mean, in general, when you're getting into older films like that, the sound quality is never terribly good. In general, you're right, but I've also heard Christopher Lee talking about how God kind of blew it in The Wicker Man in basically the same kind of setting, so... They do love their divinity lessons. But they, they are... are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. Fair enough. But yeah, it is a generally very good-looking film. You get a lot of, like, misty Scottish moors. And while we, like, have complained about the sound, the score is interesting. So the opening of the film starts off with a number of athletes running across the beach to some very iconic music. You will know it when you hear it, but before this, I had no idea where it was from. Yeah, I mean, it's a very iconic score. It's beautiful. It's, yeah. At least this here, and I'm pretty sure, like, this piece of music is what won it the Oscar for Best Score. Also, these points in the film where this really heavy synth comes in, and it feels very out of place for this period piece. I mean, I wish the whole thing had been synth. I love when the music and the time period just do not match at all. Yeah, this was not that. The 80s didn't realize what synth was at the point because it wasn't the 80s yet. So I'm somewhat face blind, and a lot of the characters in this movie all look the same and are wearing the same outfits. And have the same haircuts. And have the same haircuts, and all have the same values, which I mean, God, England, running in one order or another. There are times when I wasn't entirely sure what was happening because I couldn't keep track of who people was. If it wasn't Abraham's and his lantern jaw of justice, I, I wasn't sure who these people were. Ben Cross, who is playing Harold Abrams here, has a face that looks like it was chiseled out of stone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is fine, but he looks odd when he's supposed to be playing like an 18-year-old first starting at Cambridge. Yeah, a few years go by through the film, but we're talking about five between 1919 when the film starts and the 1924 Olympics. Not that many years. That said, he's still a good actor. Although he's also not Jewish and this is a very iconically Jewish character, so that's not great. Yeah, he's of, I believe, Irish descent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they kind of just cast a bunch of no-name actors for this. A lot of them were doing smaller roles or working in local theater. I believe that's where they found Eel Charlson. He was doing local theater in Scotland. They got the guy who will one day go on to play Bilbo Baggins. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. As an Italian-Arabic man, so that's fine. (sighs) 
Yeah. If you're looking for a film that is conscientious of the politics of race and ethnicity, this is not that film, unfortunately. No. Which really sucks because anti-Semitism is one of the major plot points of the film. What do you know about him? Jewish. His father's a financier in the city. Financier? I imagine he lends money. And what do they say about the son? Academically sound, arrogant, defensive to the point of pugnacity. Mm, as they invariably are. And they don't even handle it very well. Harold Abrams deals with some blatant anti-Semitism towards the beginning of the film, but a lot of it is much more subtle. But the way that it's framed in the film and the way that Abrams is responding to it makes it seem like he is blowing it completely out of proportion and is just feeling entitled and slighted. And I mean, we from history know that anti-Semitism does suck and will continue to suck, especially, you know, a decade or so from when this movie takes place. But the way the film frames it doesn't seem to frame that properly. It also has this kind of like both these things are equal thing with the anti-Semitism that Abrams faces and the problems of being a conservative Christian in the 21st century that, that Eric Little faces. Eric's plot focuses mostly on this tension of being the son of missionaries and being signed on to go back and do missionary work in China, but also really wanting to do this competitive running thing and compete in the Olympics. And there's some tension between him and his sister because of it, and there's tension between him and the Prince of Wales because of it when he refuses to compete on Sunday for the 100 meter race. And, you know, that is all historically accurate. Uh, Little knew slightly earlier on than the film did that the race was on Sunday, but he did refuse to compete on Sunday and it did make like national headlines because of it. I don't know, living in America and dealing with Christian martyr syndrome all of the time, I'm just exhausted here. I feel like they were trying to like set him up as a character in a way that endears us to him and did not work in the modern context. Like there's a bit where he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. There's some unfortunate Orientalism going on with a lot of the stuff surrounding China and Little. Thankfully, it's not a heavy portion of the plot, so it can mostly be ignored, but it's still there. They do frame these missionaries as having a kind of scary worldview. There's a bit where Little's dad says, Compromise is our language of the devil. And the Lord never seeks re-election. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. Yeah, it's a cheerocracy. God. <laughs> this is not a democracy, it's a cheerocracy. I don't know if I was supposed to dislike this character, but I did. And I don't know what the actual real life person was like. I'm not sure if he was better or worse. And I guess it's not great that he died comparatively young, but he died comparatively young because he was doing missionary work in China. So I guess don't do colonialism via missionary work. Well, I mean, he died in China young because it was in 1945 because it was being occupied by Japan during World War II. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been there if he wasn't doing missionary work. Yeah, but he probably would have been drafted anyway. I mean... Or died in the Blitz. Uh, maybe, but he would have died, you know, on proper English soil, despite being Scottish. <laughs> That's uh, the Scottish way. Yes, it master. Mm. <laughs> but also here is the Borg Queen from Star Trek First Contact. I am the beginning, the end. The one who is many. I am the Borg. But you mean Alice Krieg playing Sybil, who is Abram's girlfriend, and I love her. Yeah, she's one of the better parts of the film, and the romance between Harold and Sybil is pretty compelling. You didn't look very ruthless. 
should I? According to my brother. Tim says that's why you always win. We see them going out on their first date to a restaurant after she gets finished with a musical performance. Oh, right. I forgot that it happened. Is a bride, yum, yum. Two little maids in attendance come. Three little maids is the total sum. Three little maids from school. Yeah, unfortunately, there's some uh, Orientalism going on in the musical. I'm not sure exactly which one it is. but So the play is uh, The Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan. It's a satirizing of British politics by setting them in Japan with funny names. So that's fine. Yeah, their banter during that first date is really great. Although later on as that romance proceeds, there's this one point where they kiss, but the hat that Sybil is wearing completely obfuscates all of it and it just kind of ruins the shot. I'm wondering if they weren't actually kissing and that was a way to obscure that on purpose so that you couldn't see that they weren't kissing. I can see that. Who knows? We're meandering a lot. We are meandering a lot, but there's because there's not a whole lot to latch onto for this film. Overall, I didn't find it very compelling. I think part of that is because of how far removed a lot of the central tensions are. Neither of us are Christian, so we're not going to really sympathize with Little and not being willing to compete on Sunday. Neither of us are Scottish missionaries or or Jewish, so it might be that this film does have a lot of emotional weight if you're part of those communities, mm-hmm. and we're missing that, yeah. which... Fair enough, but also I'm not a Polynesian girl or a Ninja Turtle. And the, and so it is possible for me to sympathize with characters from other backgrounds. Yeah, just was not able to do it here. There's also this subplot where at the time the Olympics were very heavily prided for their uh, amateurism. And Abrams hiring a professional coach to help train him was seen as kind of scandalous. And so there's a scene where he's at dinner with two of these Cambridge administrators who are telling him, hey, you need to stop that. You're making the university look bad. It just seems completely ridiculous considering how the Olympics are today, where there's no way you can make it to the Olympics without a professional trainer and doing this pretty much as like your job, but without pay. I think I'd like this film a lot more if you cut out maybe half an hour of it. Because I think if it was a shorter, snappier film, it would have actually been a fairly pleasant, quiet drama. But because it's so long, it feels like it's trying to be very important and weighty, and it winds up not working 40 years on. Yeah, that's a big problem with this film. It's just its age. It's 40 years old, and filmmaking trends are very different, especially for sports movies and even biopics. Mm-hmm. And it's also recording a time period almost a hundred years ago at this point. I mean, the film begins in 1919. Yeah. It is literally a hundred years later. Yeah. The film doesn't really manage to get me all that invested in any of these plots. It's a long film that feels very long. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is definitely room for things. Yeah. All of Harold's like Cambridge friends, they're all in the film and they take up time and space and I don't care about any of them. They don't really have any personality. One of them is vaguely memorable because he has lighter hair, therefore I could tell who he was. And he had kind of a gay demeanor and I appreciated that. And he does have a thing he does in the plot, but it's just sort of saying, hey, what if you running a race that's not on Sunday, and everybody's like, oh, genius! Make this man Prince of Wales. 
The film also seems much more concerned with being a biopic of these two men than like actually telling a narrative. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of brings it down a little bit. It's a little, here's all these beats we need to hit to be historically accurate, quote unquote. Admittedly, this is the 80s. We are before the like template for sports movies had truly been set. So they weren't these incredibly easy things to script. Mm -hmm. We do get a training montage, though. We do get a training montage. We actually get a couple, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not bad on that front. And some of them are actually pretty good. Those are some good montages. There are also, like, some things I do really appreciate. Like, we see a couple scenes of the Americans training, and one of the American runners has this cabbie hat, but it's on backwards. And I love how (laughs) they're just using that to denote, oh, yeah, he's an American. Yep, that's how Americans dress. That's how they go into work every day. (laughs) So what now? Grin and bear it. No, Aubrey. I'm going to take them on. All of them, one by one, and run them off their feet. Ben Cross has a lot of kind of monologue deliveries where he is fighting back against slights that he's faced because of anti-Semitism or what have you. Those small little instances are pretty compelling. He has a very good, like, speechifying voice. You know, gentlemen... You yearn for victory just as I do, but achieved with the apparent effortlessness of gods. Yours are the archaic values of the prep school playground. You deceive no one but yourselves. I believe in the pursuit of excellence, and I'll carry the future with me. When we're on that character dealing with those issues, I am locked in again. And I think if the whole film had been just that, if Little had been pushed to the margins, that could have actually been a really compelling film. And I would have actually really enjoyed that. I think that's another reason that the film suffers is because they were specifically trying to do these two things at once. And there honestly wasn't a whole lot of connective tissue for them. No. Although part of that is that the so what is missing. In writing circles, we talk about like, what is the so what of this narrative? If the character succeeds, what will happen? If the character doesn't succeed, what will happen? And this film didn't give me a good job of getting a sense of what the outcomes of the characters winning or losing these races were going to be. Yeah. And, I mean, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of them. I mean, I guess they were happy. The characters felt joy. Abrams and Sybil had a better love life afterwards. Because he was able to stop ignoring her to train. It wasn't like Abrams winning was going to fix anti-Semitism in England Mm -hmm. or anything. Or even fix the issue of having professional coaches train these amateur athletes. Mm -hmm. And we see Abrams' old professors clicking their glasses happily when they hear the news that he won. But all I got from that was, oh, so they have not changed and are just glad to have an alumni who's giving the prestige and have not actually reconsidered their thoughts about people who aren't traditional Englishmen. Even film is kind of dark, but just, you know, emotionally, not lighting-wise. Mm-hmm. I don't mention how much I liked um, some of the lighting stuff, and some of that comes from uh, some scenes in a church that has, you know, lovely interior lighting because of all the stained glass and all that jazz, but the film opens and closes with a eulogy being delivered in a church. The fact that it's centered in a church, specifically a Christian church, offsets the validity of these two different faiths. I feel like it kind of centers it in a Christian worldview in a way that others, Abrams, instead of like bringing us into his like interior life as a Jewish person, yeah. and that feels kind of crappy and makes the message not work as well for me. Mm-hmm. 
All right, I think we have uh, kind of exhausted most of our points for Chariots of Fire. Do you want to move on to Blue Crush? Uh, we can. So, Anna Marie is a maid who hopes to make it big by surfing, but she's hampered by the drudgery of her life working as a maid, the trials of raising her rebellious good sister, Penny, with her roommates, Eden and Lena, and her PTSD for a surfing accident some years before. One day, Anna Marie snaps at a slovenly guest and gets fired, and out of sympathy, the guest teammate, footballer Matt, hires her to teach him surfing. Anna Marie and family wind up teaching Matt and his football buddies for a decent sum and are able to move out of poverty a little bit. They bond with the girls and Anna Marie catches feelings. Her fling with Matt distracts her from training for Pipeline, a competition on the dangerous North Shore, to Eden's frustration. After overhearing degrading classes remarks from Matt's friends, Anna Marie realizes she, she, she doesn't belong in this world and recommits to training for Pipeline. At the competition, her PTSD and a near-drowning incident get, get to her, but encouragement from Matt and pro surfer Keela Kennedy, playing herself, earn her a perfect score uh, on a surf. While she ultimately doesn't win, she gets her confidence back and a sponsorship from a local team. So, Blue Crush. Blue Crush. While our big problem in Chariots of Fire is that we were not able to connect with the protagonist of the film, that is definitely not the case here. Yeah, Anna Marie is great. Yeah, they do a really great job of introducing this character, introducing her struggles early on. The film actually starts off with her in the wee hours of the morning doing a training regimen. There's this thing where the the dreamlike nature of the water is introduced by the After Effects going bonkers, and this torrent of color and while it is a bit corny i kind of love it yeah it looks like a music video from the early 90s mm -hmm. <laughs> but it really works also kind of setting up what sort of character Anne marie is we see her getting ready in the morning and on the vanity mirror she has written in lipstick how many days there are until the competition Mm -hmm. It's a very good aesthetic mm -hmm. and kind of closes into how she's using whatever she has around her because, wow, she does not have a lot of money. I don't think it got mentioned in the summary, but Anna Marie's mom has kind of abandoned her and her younger sister for a uh, boyfriend in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So Anna Marie is kind of taking care of her 14-year-old sister by herself with the help of some high school friends. I was going to say that it doesn't really matter where her mom is, but I guess it does inform her character pretty well. So yeah, yeah. there's a feeling that you get from Anne-Marie that she sees Matt as a potential way out of this that doesn't require the hard work of being an athlete. Mm -hmm. And poverty sucks. I get it. I understand giving up and just marrying a hot guy. That is a valid option, and if she'd gone with that, I would have been like, you know, I wish you'd done more, but I understand your decision. It gets into some of the contention between her and Eden in Act 2, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Oh no, we can get into that now. I mean, we can just... Well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Act 1 first. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> the, the good act. Uh, the sister act. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, Act 1 does a incredible job of setting up all of these characters, Anne-Marie and Lena and Eden and Penny. Mm -hmm. Penny, this 14-year-old girl who's like going to college parties and getting drunk. Yeah, specifically hanging out with the douchey guy that Anne-Marie used to date. Not, not the best. It's remarkable how much of this movie has parallels of the relationship dynamics from Lilo and Stitch. I shouldn't have yelled at you. We're sisters. It's our job. Which is weird because it came out the exact same year. Is Matt the Stitch equivalent? I guess. Uh, in the fact that he starts off as this impetus that steers the family unit off track of where their destination was and tears them apart. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! 
but in the end is kind of what brings them together. Mm-hmm. I will say, while we are paralleling Lilo and Stitch, Anna Marie and her sister are white. Eden is Latina. She's played by Michelle Rodriguez. Who you might know from Fast and the Furious. And then Sano Lake plays Lena, who is a partially Hawaiian descent. We'll get into that more in Act 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Also, Kate Bosworth, who plays Anne Marie, this is not the first time she's appeared in the bracket. She was also uh, Jerry's racist girlfriend in Remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. She's moving up in the world. Yeah, redemption arc. Yeah. Emery also has a really good speech. What do you want? What do I want? Oh my god. I want Penny to quit smoking and to go to college. I want I want to be able to pay the phone and the electricity and the rent all in the same month. I want a girl to be on the cover of Surf Magazine, and that would be great if that girl were me, but any girl would do. And I want... I mean, I wish my mom would come home. And I really, really want to win Pipe Masters tomorrow. That's what I want. Kate Bosworth, she can act, but it's a good speech. Let's talk about how this movie manages to be about women in bikinis and yet not have the male gaze in it. I'm, or at least, or have very little male gaze. Yeah, especially compared to something like Stick It, where we talked about in last week's episode. The male gaze is not nearly as prevalent here. There are a few scenes, but most of the time it feels accurate because it's during the romance scenes between uh, Anne-Marie and Matt. But you have a lot of characters in bikinis who are either very little sexualized or sexualized as little as possible for women who have athletic bodies and are wearing little clothing. Honestly, the camera work is one of this film's biggest strengths, both because of that male gaze, but also all of the surfing scenes are gorgeously shot. There are some scenes where you said, how did they get that shot? Like when they have the camera right next to a character who's surfing inside the pipe of a wave. It's ridiculous, gorgeous to watch. I think because this film was inspired by a magazine article about surfing girls of Maui, which the film even credits, Mm. I think that they felt they really needed to nail the shots of the surfing, and they did. Yeah. Um, You can tell that's where a lot of the budget went, and I mean, that's a good place for that budget. It really gives you the feeling of surfing, like when the characters are doing well, you have these amazing smooth language shots, but when the characters are wiping out, you have this like frenetic editing that makes it almost hard to tell what's going on, Mm -hmm. and it's really effective. We also have some other really cool stuff, like there's a scene where the characters are doing their maid work, and you have shots of the hotel where you can see all the maids working on different levels all at once, and it's a nice shot. So you're getting some like really beautiful shots of Hawaiian backgrounds. But also it doesn't shy away from showing the proletariat aspects of Hawaii, that like not everyone gets to live these glamorous surfer lives. We're shown a lot of the maids in the very posh hotels that these professional footballs are staying in for the Pro Bowl. Most of the maid service there are either Native Hawaiian or of Asian descent. We see the struggles that Anna-Marie goes through with Penny and the school, and they even show it with Anne-Marie's car, which is like this old beater with like a door that's almost rusting off. Uh, I do love that old car. We've been heaping a lot of praise on this film. Unfortunately, it's not all sunshine and roses. Act two is very weak in comparison to act one. This is where they introduce Matt and they have the romance start and it kind of just makes the movie slow to a crawl. 
Mm-hmm. So what would you say are the central tensions and through lines and questions in this movie? The surf competition that's coming up, Anne-Marie's relationship with Penny, Anne-Marie's relationship with Eden and the tension that there is when she starts abandoning training for the competition. Tension there is between Anne-Marie and Matt because they are from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Tension with Anne-Marie's past boyfriend and Matt. The tension between Anne-Marie and Matt takes up most of the second act. I guess which of those tensions is the only one that does not come up at all in the original article this is based on? Oh, that one? Yep. Of course. Yep. I will say... It's kind of weird. So that article is about girls who are like teenagers and tweens. And there is a character who I guess could be called the Matt equivalent, who's kind of a mentor-ish figure, but he's more of a surrogate father figure for these 14-year-old girls. And I don't know if the movie meant for that to be kind of that character in this, but it leaves a weird, icky feeling on the back of my neck. Yeah, I feel the same way. That's real unfortunate. Although I'm sure that the filmmakers in the moment were like, no one's going to go back and read this article after the movie. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess who found it? Under the name of Life's Swell. Yeah, I know. There are some good parts of Act 2. I really like Leslie as a character. He is one of the linebackers for Matt's football team. He's having a lot of fun. Yeah. You're gonna surf in that? Hell no. Nah. I'm gonna surf in my da da In your what? My. You're wearing nut hugger. Some might call him that. I call him nut containers. You gonna teach me how to work? Just this giant black man who is just enjoying his Hawaiian vacation before he has to complete compete in the Pro Bowl. You also have that really good parallel at the midpoint of the movie where we see Anna Marie waking up in this hotel room. Matt saying, "Hey, just order whatever you want from room service. Um, it's on my ticket." And she's languishing in bed. She's enjoying herself. She's basically doing nothing and it's a really good contrast to her waking up before dawn to train. That was really good writing. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that note Matt leaves though. It's like, spend the money on the maids. They deserve a raise. Uh, Like on one hand, Anne-Marie used to be a maid and he specifically knows exactly why she got fired. Mm -hmm. But also on the other hand, it's like, oh yeah, I have the maids do whatever you want. We're paying them. So yeah, you could spend a whole hour talking about just that note and like the class dynamics in this thing. It's also especially awkward since her two friends and roommates still work as maids in that hotel. Mm -hmm. and even come visit her in the room later on. And she shares some of the stuff she orders from room service with them. Shut up! You're so irritating! (laughs) Well, it's not my fault they abducted me and forced me to eat blueberry waffles. Blueberry waffles? Where? Outside. Nice. They do a really good job of having kind of two dynamics there. Lena's just like, wow, this is great. You're having so much fun. And Eden is like, no, this is bad. You're becoming everything that is the reason we are in the position we are in right now. Slash your mother. I don't mind there being tension between Anne-Marie and Eden. I just really hate the way that it plays out going back to like all this mean girl bullshit stereotypes, Mm -hmm. especially since we already got that with all of the other football players, wives and girlfriends. Yeah. There is a scene during the whole Anne-Marie in the hotel bit where she uses a towel and then compulsively straightens it and like puts it back on like precisely, which I think is a really good little bit of visual storytelling that she can't get out of this mode, which I have been there. I still have have my retail voice from when answering the phone sometimes. It's really frustrating because I really wish the main tension between Eden and Anne-Marie is Eden trying to get Anne-Marie to deal with her 
fear of drowning and the PTSD associated with it before the competition rather than her trying to deal with it during the competition. Yeah, she does so badly during the competition. One of my notes was, maybe you should just not surf. Maybe it's not your sport. She eventually is able to overcome everything and do some really impressive surfing, but I really wish that her like training before was more focused on overcoming that fear. Mm-hmm. And like her dealing with the fear in the third act is also not the only problem with the third act, unfortunately. Most of it I really enjoy. However, they heavily use Emery's old boyfriend and his posse of surfer guys. Mm-hmm. And they just act as this peanut gallery throughout the competition. And especially considering how crappy they were to Emery at the beginning about her being a girl who wants to surf professionally. And they're very gendered insults about that tossing out all those gendered insults during a women's competition really sucks it doesn't help on a narrative level that Emery is white her boyfriend is white who she's kind of like showing the secrets of hawaii and a lot of these guys aren't so you have this kind of sense of native antagonism which admittedly was a thing from the article but the film doesn't spend enough time to unpack the complexities of different kinds of privilege clashing. Yeah. There's also a scene where, in between the heats when Anne-Marie's not competing, Drew asks Matt for a favor because a few of the women have like recognized him as some sports star, and he wants to get a picture with them so he can get in their pants. Can we get a picture? See, we're working with chicks over here. They think you're some kind of great hockey player or something like that. And I'm like, they literally punched each other a couple days ago. Why is Matt agreeing to be a wingman for this guy? Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense. There's been no sort of apology or forgiveness between the two of them. They have not interacted since they beat the crap out of each other. Yeah. It all kind of comes to a head with Drew spouting this line after Anne-Marie's perfect score surf. I really could have done without this character in the entire movie. I think it would have been a very solid improvement. Yeah. It would have streamlined the plot a little bit. It would have pushed the complicated race issues off to the side where they should probably be kept if you're not going to unpack them. For being a longish film, there are a decent amount of drop threads. Like, Penny's truantism doesn't really come back up at all. Yeah, she kind of just gets better. Mm-hmm. Eden being supportive of her friend while also being resentful that she doesn't get sponsored because she's either not quite as good or not quite as white doesn't really get brought back in. Yeah. We also don't really have any indication of where the relationship between Matt and Anne-Marie is going to go at film's end because Matt has an NFL career and it's insinuated that he plays for the Minnesota Vikings. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of surfing happening up there. And admittedly, her getting a man was never a vital part of the plot. It was her getting her confidence and like crossing her PTSD. Oh, yeah. so, com- so it's fine, but yeah. yeah. But I still- com- yeah, I completely agree that I'm fine with that ambiguity, especially because it, like, it wasn't the main crux of the film. But because of how much time they spent on the romance, you think they'd like finish off that plot thread? Mm-hmm. And there's a fairly pivotal scene where he helps her get her confidence back. Look, I can't talk you into going back out there. It's... It seems crazy, but I know how good you are, and I know how much this means to you. I just don't want you to spend your life wondering what could have been. And I feel like that should have been Eden. That should definitely have been this, like, recovery of this relationship between these two found family sister types. Mm -hmm. That would have been a way stronger emotional resonance than the guy you met thinks you're good at it. You can win at piping. 
Sur- a win at surfing. Yeah, like you're getting awful close to that terrible headline at the towards the end of the film. <laughs> the girls lay pipe. <laughs> God. Okay, so I'm sure this is an actual surf thing. I'm sure this is a, a thing the film could not help, but they spent a lot of time talking about surfing pipe and winning at pipe and uh, you know, like girls lay pipe, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean it's not the movie's fault that we're like this, but. <laughs> Uh, no, it's not, but they should have known better. I yes. Mean, um, I'm, I'm sure people were making the same jokes in 2002. Probably. One last thing, Ding Chariots of Fire for the sound mixing. Blue Crush has some kind of loud music too, so it's not terrible, but the budget cutting corners has some problems for this. Mm. I do like the soundtrack though. It's filled with a lot of like hip hop and reggae. Yeah, the soundtrack is all exactly what the film needed. The decibels are a little too high on it. There's this really awesome remix of Cruel Summer that gets used a couple times. Solid. Mm-hmm. And speaking of very solid, this movie at its best has this slight psychedelic vibe, which is kind of what you should have in a movie about the water. Like as a Pisces, I, I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, extra innings. All right. So training montage, best training montage we have from Chariots of Fire is probably the scene on the beach. The Purgatory Beach. <laughs> so in that scene, there is a uh, young man standing in the uh, in the foreground with a boy and a dog as they're watching all the runners go by. And I, I made the comment that, oh, look, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> Monitoring the fifth circle. <laughs> yeah. It's either that or Abrams working with Musabini. Mm-hmm. That is probably like the better like traditional montage, but yeah. I think the running along the Purgatory Beach is a more iconic montage. Yes. So points there. Mm. Yeah. And it has two really strong montages. Yeah. And then for Blue Crush, we also kind of have two very strong montages. We have the opening montage with Anne-Marie in the just break of daylight. Such good character building. Yeah. Then we also have her and her friends teaching the football players how to surf. Mm -hmm. And the teaching them how to surf thing does a really good job of showing how difficult surfing is and how good these girls are at it. Mm -hmm. Because these guys who presumably have some athletic skill are no good at it at first. And, but they're also good teachers because they're showing, um, showing them how to make this work. Yeah. Each of them catch at least one wave by the end of the first day. Yeah. That's a really good montage. It's a really good scene. It's very charming. There's a lot of good character bits in there. Gimmicks? Oh, gimmicks. Chariots of Fire has that bit where uh, what's his bucket is running hurdles, and if he spills even a drop of wine, he has to start over. That's a fun gimmick. I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's a lot better than um, I'm running for God. Yep. <laughs> Using magic shouldn't be legal for the Olympics. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Blue Crush, we have a really cool scene where Emery is running underwater holding a stone while her uh, while her sisters are like holding onto her back. That's a really cool shot. It looks really fun. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably die. <laughs> I'll be the rock. So, best montage, I've got to give it to Blue Crush. Yeah. Like, that opening montage with Anne-Marie is so good, and it is does a, such a great job of building up her character. Mm-hmm. Whereas the montages in Chariots of Fire, one is a group scene, and it doesn't really give us an idea of who any of our main characters are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blue Crush does such a good job of showing and not telling in that scene, where Chariots of Fire has an iconic scene, but not necessarily an actually good one. Mm-hmm. Um, for gimmick, I kind of got to get into the wine glasses. I think it's just, it's just such a fun <laughs> English thing. 
it varies, especially since they're like coupe glasses. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, everyone in that scene and honestly in that movie should probably be eaten when the proletariat finally rise up. But I kind of love that open lawn, all my coupe glasses and my champagne aesthetic. Yeah. It's also one of the few memorable scenes in that movie. Yeah, because it seemed like the character was having fun, which no one else is having in this movie. Yeah, and it's specifically like. Neither of our protagonists, it's one of Harold's friends and Sybil, who's like, I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Why is he so obsessed with this? Mm-hmm. So, one apiece for extra innings. Oh, damn. I thought the extra innings would help, because I'm kind of a bit on the fence here. I am not. Chariots of Fire, when it was over, I wanted to go take a nap. Yeah. It is a very technically well-done film. There's a lot of good acting, but I just didn't find it compelling at all, and that's not the case with Blue Crush. The first act did a great job of dragging me in and making me care about these characters in the story. And as much as the problems in the subsequent acts I have issues with, Chariots of Fire has just as big of problems, but I didn't care because I didn't care about any of the characters in that film. It was just, oh, I see problems, but I didn't like get upset or frustrated with it. It was just, oh, they're there. Honestly, that persuades me. I think Chariots of Fire is competent but boring, whereas Blue Crush is interesting but messy. Yes. Yeah. I think I'm more interested in figuring out Blue Crush than I am figuring out Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Also, I mean, I watched Chariots of Fire for a film genres class. I'm sure there's Chariots of Fire discourse out there. We're here to add to the Blue Crush discourse. Treading that untrod ground, but uncharted waters. So that finishes off round one. There are definitely some upsets. Who thought Rocky would be taken out in the first match? Speaking of which, the first match for round two, we're going to be revisiting Eddie the Eagle as well as Cool Runnings. So it's just going to be a celebration of the 88 Calgary Olympics. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be such a fun episode. And if you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, you can be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.